Okay, quiet on the set, everybody. Stand by. Roll camera. Speed. Roll sound. Speed. Market. And cue talent. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Art Aldridge, and this week in production, it's crunch time. This week in production is produced by Art Aldrich. The thoughts and opinions expressed here are undoubtedly his own. You can reach Art at thisweekinproduction at gmail.com. This is Don McGee. To book me for voiceovers, please call 908-451-6760. Thanks. Typically for me, at the end of the year, I get into this bottleneck where the edits are due, the edits are backed up, and I'm just crunching through it. It's um, it's just a backlog, and that's my focus to clear it out. It was making me think about uh, editing and the Mac, and we had this conversation, Tom Chartrand and I, on uh, episode 139 a few weeks ago in October, and we were discussing the state of Final Cut Pro. We were talking about the Final Cut Pro Summit, which is put on by Future Media Concepts. We've been to that event in the past, couldn't make it this time because of a conflict, but we alluded that if Apple was going to do a new update to Final Cut Pro, that would probably be the place to do it. And lo and behold, they did. They showed the attendees of the summit Final Cut Pro 10.7. And they announced that this release was going to happen by the end of November. And I held this recording of the podcast. This is December 1st that I'm recording this. I held it to see if indeed Apple was going to drop 10.7 by the end of the month. And they did. It was 2 p.m. yesterday, the 30th of November. They dropped the update. And here we go. When Apple showed the 10.7 demo to the attendees of the summit, the nice thing they did was they didn't embargo anyone. They could say whatever they wanted about it. They couldn't show any pictures or video, but they could talk about it publicly. So we did get to hear a little bit about the new features. And I, I watched a bunch of media about it, some bloggers, some people who were there you know, in person, I mean, to me, it wasn't an overwhelming update. They basically took Final Cut Pro, it was at 10.6.10, and they revved it to 10.7. Usually when it goes up, that um, point release, not a point point release, like 6.10, but from 10.6 to 10.7, that's usually a more significant update. And unfortunately, the features, to me, were not that interesting. The big headline feature is the scrolling timeline. And yes, you know, we had this in Final Cut 7, other platforms have it. I'll be honest, it's not like a make or break feature for me. I've learned to, you know, work around it. I use keyboard shortcuts and I don't need to usually zoom all the way in where the timeline doesn't, you know, fit in the window and it's scrolling. And honestly, if you just tap the space bar, it jumps up to the playhead anyway. I wasn't craving this. I'm assuming that there were enough people clamoring for a scrolling timeline and Apple felt like it was time to address it. The thing that was interesting about this feature 
one attendee that was at the summit and saw the 10.7 demo conveyed that Apple told them that this feature, scrolling timeline, with the uh, audio waveforms and the way they implemented it, they couldn't do it until the hardware was fast enough. The Apple Silicon transition was, you know, years ago. Like, I don't think you need to have an M3 in order to have a scrolling timeline. I, I don't know why they would say that, but that's what they said about, you know, waiting to get this feature so long. At the end of the day, honestly, if the waveforms draw faster, which I'm in the process of testing, then I'm happy with it. I don't care about, you know, why or how we just got to that point because the waveform redraws for me have been a bottleneck in the editing workflow. So if it's faster, I'm, I'm good with it. Another feature that has been added is expanded video roles in Final Cut. In the past, if you had uh, audio and video import together, the audio was given a dialogue uh, role. So the video and audio would basically have a dialogue label and a color applied to it automatically. And if you changed the role of the audio, the video clip would also change its role color even though it was still video. And so it basically inherited the audio role. Now they've separated that out. Now video roles can be separate from the audio roles. And I think really what this means is when you're looking at your timeline, your project in Final Cut, and you have you know, colors and lanes and things like that, you can now have more granular coloring to video clips. Again, I speak for myself that it's not a feature that I need to use all the time. I may never use video roles past just plain video, but I could see some needs that occasionally I would, I would use it. Maybe if I was doing licensed stock footage, you know, I was doing something from uh, Getty Images where it was licensed per second, and I needed to keep track of those clips, make sure that I didn't miss something in the reporting or you know, use something I wasn't licensed to use. You could color code the uh, clips in a different color. And then when you're looking at your timeline in the lanes with the roles expanded, you would see all the clips that have you know stock footage labels for a role. I use audio roles all the time for uh, mixing. I use audio rolls all the time in editing. It helps me to do um, different mixes. And when I'm going to master things, I can apply effects to a whole bunch of clips without having to do it individually. For example, when we're filming golfers on a course, the Golf Pro wears a wireless lav mic that records a Zaxcom. And there's a boom uh, operator carrying a shotgun mic with the foursome. And those two audio channels I use separately for different reasons. If I need to hear something that one of the guests is saying, I might want to bring the boom up or I might need to take the boom out completely. So I assign the boom its own audio role and the lav gets its own audio role. And then when I go to do a mix down, if I need to boost the boom level overall, it's on its own lane. 
makes it super easy. Same thing with music. I can have multiple music clips with roles. When I go to look at it as a lane, all of those clips now have basically been harmonized into one track and I can apply either a level adjustment or a fade or whatever I need to do. I can do it to all of those clips at once. So I like roles. Again, the video role, not a big use for me, but to some people, I suppose it might be something that they've been waiting for. It's just odd that that was one of the major feature updates. Another new feature they added was some improvements to the motion tracker. The motion tracker now has a new library where it can understand when objects pass behind something, in, you know, something's in the foreground and it passes behind that. The track does not get lost. It's much better at staying on the track as it goes behind an object. Again, part of my workflow, my daily editing, I'm not doing a ton of motion tracking. I mean, sure, it's it's a nice to have, but uh, I would like to have seen some new things added, such as uh, you know, audio to text, or text-based editing, or you know, magic eraser. Uh, any of these things that would be uh, AI, machine learning, way more interesting to me than improved motion tracking. The last new feature, I believe, of the 10.7 update is only for those users running Sonoma operating system. And this feature that they've added is called video segmenting. And it shows up when you go into the share export dialog box and you send out uh, either like H.264 or H.265. And you're going to send that out from the dialog box. There's a new checkbox that says use segmented uh, encoding. I've tested this on my new M3 MacBook Pro. Yes, that's right. I have a new M3 MacBook Pro, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. But that's the only machine I have running Sonoma. So I tested this out. I had an hour-long video podcast that I was uh, exporting. And I did a test with and without the segmenting on. And it looks to be about... 20% gain in exporting, which is, you know, I'll take it. It's it's good. If you haven't seen Steve Martin talk about the new features of 10.7 on the Ripple Training YouTube channel, you should go check that out. But he was saying that he has tested that as well. He was seeing about a 15% gain, but less gain on shorter clips and, you know, it seemed to be better with longer clips. Like I said, I only tested it on a 62-minute export, and I did see about, you know, 17 to 20% uh, gain. So those were the big drops from the 10.7 update. A lot of the attendees who left the conference seemed to be happy with where Apple is. Again, I didn't get to, you know, sit in that room with the Apple pro team to ask them questions about development. I don't know what was asked. I don't know what they answered, but people who have posted about being there seem to leave with a positive attitude about where Final Cut Pro is going. I'm not so cheery and sunny on it. I don't know how long it will take Apple to start implementing some of these features. Obviously, if I'm looking 
you know, somewhat into my crystal ball. We know that the Apple Vision Pro headset is going to be out in the next, you know, three to six months. I know Final Cut Pro will be updated to handle, you know, 3D uh, editing and, you know, stuff to go with the augmented reality. So, you know, maybe there's another big update coming down the road in that time frame that will have some additional editing features, things that we had talked about previously. I'm not sure. So I'm not as optimistic about Final Cut as maybe if I had attended the summit. Also, in the time since the last podcast, and I alluded to this earlier, Apple dropped a surprise on us by releasing the M3, M3 Pro, and the M3 Max processors. And I say surprise because no one was really predicting it. The, uh, the rumor mongers, if you will, didn't really uh, talk about this coming out so quickly because the M2 was just released in June of 22. So it's a little more than a year, and they have this new M3 series of chips. That's you know a pretty rapid development schedule. I don't know if that's you know sustainable going forward. Like every year we're going to see a new M chip or not. Only time will tell if that's really a sustainable pace. But basically, Apple had this announcement and they released a new uh, iMac series and a new MacBook Pro series with the M3 chips. You know, as we get to the end of the year, for me. Um, usually need to burn some cash, get some upgrades, get some things in to uh, keep the accountant happy. So the timing was good for me. I went and and plunked down my, uh, my cash on a 16-inch MacBook Pro. I went with the Max chip and 128 gigabytes of RAM. That's basically the top-level RAM that you can get in the machine. Cost me about you know, five grand all said and done. Now it's not a maxed out machine because I only kept the one terabyte internal drive. I thought about maybe going bigger, but most of my editing and work I'm doing on the laptop is going to use external storage anyway. So I figured I'd save a couple of bucks on the storage, spend it on the RAM. What I've noticed in uh, Apple Silicon, since everything is sharing memory, the more memory that is in the machine, the snappier the machine will behave. Again, this is not a scientific um, study, but my feeling is the more the merrier on RAM. So I did decide to go 128. We'll have to see how that pans out with the speed, but I'm pretty happy with it right now. The other little funny bit about the new laptops Apple gave us a new color choice with the 16-inch and 14-inch MacBook Pros, what they call Space Black. Now, there's a lot of people, you know, complaining on the internet about it's not really black, it's kind of gray. I mean, yes, it's not black. Black, to me, was the PowerBook G3 Wall Street. That laptop was undoubtedly black. This one is more of a dark gray. They call it space gray. Do you really care? I, I don't. I usually put a uh, plastic cover over my laptop anyway. Sometimes they're colored. So the actual color of the machine, to me, doesn't really matter. 
although I did buy a clear case this time to maybe show off the fact that it's darker than uh, the normal Apple gray. The case of this new MacBook Pro also has a new alloy that's supposed to resist fingerprints. It's using this new coating or whatever. And I don't know if that's how true that is. It's hard to say. I haven't used it enough side by side with my old one to say, oh yeah, it's definitely reduced fingerprints or not, but that's the claim. Your mileage may vary. What I did get to test was the rendering times of the uh, M3 Max laptop that I just bought against my M1 Max MacBook Pro, and I also tested it against my M1 Max Mac Studio. Now, both those machines have 64 gigabytes of RAM. The new one has 128 gigabytes of RAM. I'm not sure if there's any bonus there to the rendering or not, but what I can say is, generally speaking, the M3 Max is about 40% faster in rendering than the M1. All I can say is that 40% is a good jump, but when I look at the CPU and GPU usage under heavy use, I still feel like Apple needs to do more with software optimization to really push those processors harder. I feel like, you know, it's still not really hitting all that the processor can offer. So I think there's still work to be done there. Now, what they didn't show is the Ultra family of chips for the M3. And the Ultras would probably go into the Mac Pro and the Mac Studio, maybe a Mac Mini, but I'm not sure about that. So there will be a refresh to those machines, maybe three to six months. All depends on you know, how Apple is doing with the uh, chip yields. I think I'm ready for a new Mac Studio, especially if I'm getting a 40% uh, rendering gain. I would definitely consider an Ultra Studio. The one thing I can say about my Mac Studio that I'm sort of regretting, because I, I went with a M1 Max, 64 gigabytes, and I went all the way in on the um, storage, eight terabytes of internal storage, but I didn't go with the Ultra. And really what I miss most, I think, what I'm lacking is Thunderbolt ports. And that Ultra chip has two extra Thunderbolt ports built in on the studio. On the front, on the Macs, they're USB-C, USB, you know, three. But on the Mac Studio Ultra, those are Thunderbolt. And right now, especially as I'm prepping for Iditarod 24 and live streaming, I've got lots of devices connected and I'm, I'm constantly swapping devices to make room for other Thunderbolt devices. I perhaps will consider a Mac Pro. I mean, one, you get more Thunderbolt uh, ports on that machine, but also I could save ports by using a PCI video IO card. And so instead of using like Blackmagic Ultra Studio monitors and recorders, little external throwdown devices, I could use a single card and bring video in and take video out from there and save the, the bus for other things. So I'm not sure, we'll have to see, we'll have to see where things go with that, where I am with you know workload and what they're offering in the M3 Ultras. But 
that's the one thing I regret on my Mac Studio is not getting the Ultra for the extra Thunderbolt ports. As I said, it's December 1 when I'm recording this episode. It's getting close to the end of the year. It's getting close to that time when my corporate clients disappear for two or three weeks until after uh, you know January 1. So I am frantic to get things uh, in front of them for approvals and sign-offs. I have one more job. It's a West Coast shoot, the last one of the year. And I am still, with the new uh, requirements from United this year, I am still three flight segments short to make my 1K status. That's going to be a challenge now because I need to take a flight with either two hops or two round trips somewhere to, uh, to get my status. And uh, I have to see if I'm gonna just take a little hub hop or I'm gonna go somewhere fun. So I'll keep you updated as to my travel plans for late December. But that's a wrap on this week's podcast. Thanks for listening.